The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. In mission conferences that I have attended lately, uh, I've been hearing all kinds of stories about uh, how seminary is the death for vision, uh, for mission. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to tell a story on Harvey. I just heard it this weekend uh, from the, the pulpit in our church. Um, the story goes something like this, um, and it actually leads something into my own personal pilgrimage here. But um, there was this, uh, a young man who heard Harvey in the late or mid to late 70s at Urbana and uh, was fired with a vision for mission, uh, particularly to uh, the Muslim world. So where did he go to, to learn more about his vision for mission but Westminster uh, Seminary? That's where Harvey Kahn was. So he comes in to see Harvey and of course, I don't think they'd even met, or perhaps they'd introduced themselves at Urbana, and he's all excited about missions and says, you know, what can I do to keep my vision mission going here? And Harvey groans and says, oh, no, Westminster's the death for vision mission. Uh, but he said, there is a, a missions fellowship, a missions prayer group. Let me introduce you uh, to them. And Harvey took a very active role with that group and uh, made them uh, pray for unreached peoples. At that time, a, a very new uh, idea. He uh, had them research peoples. They, they couldn't even pronounce their names. And uh, this man is now the associate director, I believe, of Frontiers Mission, had been on the field in, in Morocco. So his mission vision uh, did not die. And perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little weary of the stories about how uh, seminary kills the, the, the mission vision only because I, I was reminded of a story a friend of mine, an Israeli friend of mine, uh, told me over the internet or told many people over the internet during the Gulf War and the Scud missile crisis in Israel. Uh, at the time, two Israelis were publishing their diaries uh, about the, the, the fears and trials and tribulations they're experiencing during the Scud missiles dropping in Israel. And he finally came on to this forum. This is back in the days before there was an AOL or a CompuServe. It was mostly just a handful of scholars who had a common interest in computing and humanities. He got on the line and said to everyone, I am sick and tired of hearing about these Scud missiles and all the problems they're causing. Scud missiles are saving lives in Israel. Here's how, he says. He said, in the last 10 days since the Scud missiles have been falling, not one person has been killed on the highway in Israel. On average, two people a day or more are killed on the highways in Israel. If you've ever driven or been in Israel, you'll understand why this. In fact, it's the providence of God that the number isn't tenfold larger than that. But in that period, no one at that point had been killed by a Scud missile. He says, I'm, just, I'm weary hearing about this problem with Scud missiles. It's saving lives. In fact, even crime had plunged. Apparently, burglars and thieves didn't go out at night anymore either. So 
So I feel the same about mission, uh, seminary uh, and missions. And it's, it's my own story, perhaps, um, that, that illustrates it for me. I was in ministry without going to seminary. I, was a, I had been part of a college fellowship that was recreating the New Testament church. And um, we thought we knew, we knew pretty much everything there was to know. Tradition was pretty well that which should be jettisoned, thrown out the back door. Uh, and I found myself pastoring a church in, in rural Vermont. Now, I, I spoke the same language. We all spoke English. I was from America, uh, but these people were from Vermont. <laughs> and I learned that I was in a mission situation. Uh, you know, we, we, we really, we, we shared a language and a, a common land, but we were really culturally distant. I'm, I'm from the Midwest, uh, as Joel already pointed out to you. Um, I wouldn't have given 10 cents to go to seminary. In fact, you couldn't have paid me enough to go to seminary before this experience. But uh, by, the, by the time I finally came to seminary, that ministry mission experience drove me here. I needed to find a place that would teach me the scripture, that would help me bring to bear on my own life and the lives of others the scriptures. I looked around at seminaries, uh, the one virtue for Westminster, and there are others like this, but there are other reasons for Westminster, was it taught the whole counsel of God. Scripture, Old and New Testament was taught. There were seminaries I could have attended that only would have taught me New Testament. I could get through without learning the Old Testament and get an MDiv, if you can believe that. I will not name that seminary, but it is well known. Uh, I think it's changed since that day. Um, uh, the, Theology in its fullest orbed um, presentation was presented, apologetics, the, a biblically based education. Um, a lot of seminaries were touting their supervised ministry programs at that time, uh, but I wanted to learn the Bible. I, I, could, I can learn about ministry in the church, uh, but what I needed to learn was the Bible. And it was here that my vision for the mission we have as a church, as it flowed out of the teaching of Scripture, uh, exploded, and it has continued to explode. In fact, preparing for this talk has been um, spiritually invigorating for me, having to visit the Old Testament and consider what uh, does the Old Testament say about mission and it's um, not an easy task, as we'll see as we go along this morning. Um, you know, is Yahweh a missionary God? Is the Old Testament a missionary document? Uh, if so, what implications for us in our education, uh, theologically speaking, and for mission? What I encountered, and let me begin with the end from the beginning here, was a fresh God's sovereign superintendence, his sovereign intent and control over a salvation that he planned from the beginning. A salvation which, whose intent, which intent never changed. God didn't change his mind. He didn't plan something that failed and then go to plan B. He had one plan that he brought to full flower. And uh, we in this room are the first fruits and, and evidence of that. But I'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, against all imagination and hope, the nations have been included. Um, 
I was reminded that Christ is the center of the revelation in the Old Testament. Uh, Christ himself tells us that in the New Testament, but I was reminded afresh seeing Jesus revealed uh, as the focus of our mission proclamation, even in the Old Testament. I was struck afresh and anew by that movement from who God is, what he has done, to what we are to do in response. That, that order is essential because that's, it's not just what we have experienced, but it's the way God revealed himself. He did this and that so that we might know that Yahweh is God. Besides him, there is no other. I also was confronted with the blindness of Israel, and that addressed my own blindness, my blindness to um, how the current Christian culture and even more broadly the, 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 the world culture in which I live has affected me, has uh, uh, influenced the way I come to scripture, influenced the way I live and a challenge and a call to repent. Uh, Finally, I just was reacquainted with God's redemptive plan, how the nations and how Israel were to function. The, the, the purpose God had with each group in his redemptive plan. He speaks, he spoke beforehand what he would do. He did it, and then he interpreted for us uh, what he, he did among us in his saving plan, and particularly a focus on the nations and on Israel. Um, that's where I will be uh, looking today. In my assignment to consider Yahweh as a missionary God, of course there's a certain anachronism to that question, or the Old Testament as a missionary document, um, I, I'm going to answer that question by looking at the tension that I feel, or have felt at times, uh, and many have felt in the Old Testament, a t tension that confronts us at the very heart of our modern mission enterprise in this age of, this, uh, of mission, this epoch of, of the spirit. And that's that our, our paradigm for missions, um, global, contextualizing a message for the audience to, to where we go, um, to the nations, when the Old Testament says, in on the one hand, all the nations will be blessed in Abraham, and on the other hand, the nations are to be shunned for their polluting influence, to uh, be avoided, even destroyed. Seem to be two strands here, uh, apparently in conflict. And it's a conflict that spills over into the New Testament. We're well acquainted with that tension, Jew and Gentile. But too often when we go to the Old Testament as missiologists, we tend to mine those scattered passages that talk about um, the nations being included, the nations being blessed. We avoid the hard passages about destroying man, woman, child. And I think we avoid them to the diminishment of God's redemptive purpose and plan, seeing the fullness of what God is doing with the nations and with Israel in the Old Testament reveals a God who can and will bring the gospel to all peoples. 
Where I'm going to go is we'll consider briefly what is mission. Uh, in, in a missions conference, we ought to do a little bit of that somewhere along the way. Um, asking then the question, is the mission, as we look at the New Testament as presented there, is this a surprise ending to the Old Testament uh, or its fulfillment? And in particular, we're going to look at the prophecy of Isaiah as a focal point. Um, implications for our theological education and then a concluding exhortation. And Lord willing, we will have time for questions uh, at the end. So please, uh, if you have questions, and I hope you will, to help sharpen all of us, uh, that we can uh, go after them uh, here. If we look at the New Testament, uh, Jesus' final sayings in Matthew, John, uh, Luke, Mark, perhaps form the um, uh, framework, foundation for our understanding of missions. We're given authority uh, in uh, Matthew 28, 16 and following to disciple all nations, not just Israel, all nations. And Jesus will be with us in our baptizing and teaching uh, project. Um, Jesus tells us that the Old Testament spoke of him, that that is the central that he is the central uh, aspect of our proclamation, that we are to preach repentance and forgiveness. Luke records the words of Jesus um, at the, uh, at the, before his ascension. We are witnesses, and we will be clothed with the power of the Spirit in order to fulfill this ministry. Ultimately, in the book of Acts, we learn from Christ that we are witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, the ends of the earth. In our modern day mission understanding, we understand that we have a proclamation, a proclamation in word and deed that Christ is the Lord, that he is the savior, and that this proclamation is global. That's the, the buzzword that is here among us. It's to the nations, and it's cross-cultural. It's to be uh, contextualized. We're addressing many who live in non-Western situations. But if this, we, we need to resolve this background, this tension in the Old Testament of nation and the nations and Israel, the exclusion of the nations, the inclusion, particular inclusion of Israel. Um, of course, in Christ, he tears down the wall. We know this. But yet we need to, to understand the, the Old Testament in, in one sense in its own terms uh, here. As I said earlier, the temptation for us in our missiology is to simply look at those passages in the Old Testament that speak of the inclusion of the nations and to ignore the passages that talk about uh, their judgment. Indeed, the predominant view is probably the judgment view. If you want to count passages, count perspectives, uh, that's, that's the dominant view. How in the dickens, how in the deuce do the nations get included? In, 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 as the Old Testament would speak about it, and indeed the Old Testament does speak uh, about it. It's not that 
God turns to the nations because his project with Israel failed. This is a common misunderstanding. It is not that, uh, yes, Israel proved to be a recalcitrant son, and so the, the, the church age is a parenthesis, and God will come back and pick up the business uh, with Israel uh, another moment. That's not what the Old Testament teaches, I believe. We, we must address uh, this tension, Israel and the nations, and how the Old Testament resolves that tension. To that end, we need to ask, is, is this mission of proclaiming Christ to all nations, is this a surprise ending to the Old Testament or its fulfillment? And to that end, we need to at least consider a little bit the purpose uh, of the Old Testament. The exodus, the salvation uh, of Israel, God choosing a particular nation out from among the other nations, is the signal event that, in a sense, it's that event in which in, uh, the, the writing of Scripture begins. Uh, no one will say it, be, it, it begins any earlier than that, for uh, we, we, we hold to here to an essential mosaic authorship. Uh, of the first five books of the, of the Pentateuch, th those books swirling around the issue of the Exodus. God choosing a particular people. He loved them. He chose them for his purposes to glorify him to be a kingdom of priests. But to understand some of the purpose of the Pentateuch, uh, I'm going to appeal to the book of Deuteronomy. This is the, if you will, the conclusion to the book of, uh, to the five books of the Pentateuch. It's, a, it's, it's a clearly reflecting on the events, even the uh, words of those first four books. It is Moses' last will and testament. He is not going in to the promised land with his people. He has a message to leave with them, which will guide them for life in the land that God has promised. And it's his sermon. It's, it's a, it's a multi-part sermon, three-part sermon with a song at the end and then a narrative about Moses' death. But it concludes and interprets the events that have gone ahead. And in that conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy is chapters one to four are the introduction. Uh, and they recount all the great and mighty things that God did on Israel's behalf. And then we come to chapter 4, which is the conclusion to the introduction. And the conclusion to the introduction of chapter 4 begins in verse 32. And it begins with these words, uh, 32 and following. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth, ask from one end of the heavens to the other, has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that Yahweh is God 
Besides him, there is no other. Moses goes back to the language and situation of Genesis chapter 1 and suggests that he's giving us an interpretation for the existence of these books. By appealing to that language, um, he's giving us a reason for these background books so that the spotlight is on what he has done with taking Israel out from among another nation. Nothing since the beginning of time, since creation, is so great as my choosing this people. And I did it miraculously so that the world, uh, so that you might know that Yahweh is God. Besides him, there is no other. Very particularistic here, the, the, all the Pentateuch pointing to this choosing of Israel. The nations uh, are uh, set aside. That they might know by the miracles that he has done that Yahweh is God. Besides him, there is no other. The other nations are not on the horizon. In fact, Deuteronomy will go on and give commands about excising any pollution from the nations from among your midst, having nothing to do with them. Don't marry them. Don't make treaties with them. Indeed, destroy the nations. That's a particular set of nations. Even those nations that weren't to be destroyed, you are not to, to marry. You're not to... Um, the Moabites, for example, ten generations have nothing uh, to do with them. Out of this... In chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 9 actually precedes this um, interpretive comment on the Pentateuch by Moses. Moses gives um, an exhortation to Israel concerning their mission. And he says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget. And what do you suppose they're not to forget? Right away, Deuteronomy, you're going to think law. But Moses says, do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and your children after them. At the heart of the Torah, God is revealing himself in miraculous ways that Israel might know he is God and Israel is to be declaring this to the generations that follow as well as the law. Do not misunderstand me here. I'm not, I, I am simply saying that who God is, what he's done, is that first element in proclamation. Even the Ten Commandments teach us this. Where do the Ten Commandments begin? Not with, thou shalt have no other gods before us, for me, but, but with, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. It begins with who God is, what he's done, and then the imperative. But this language about the nations in Deuteronomy, okay, we see the selection of Israel, but then in Deuteronomy, for, for a purpose, to proclaim from one generation to the next the great and mighty things God has done, to teach uh, their children the law when they rise up, stand, uh, walk, uh, sit down. But they're also to, uh, to deal with the nations and uh, Exodus 34, Numbers 33, uh, Deuteronomy 2, um, 
etc. Joshua fulfills it. They go in. They're, they're, they're not to, they're to break down their altars to, to their, their, their idols. They're not to worship these false gods. They are to destroy these nations, man, woman, and child. Imagine if that was going on today, what the banner and the inquirer would say about these wandering Hebrews who came across uh, the Jordan River from uh, east to west into the land and began to destroy people starting in Jericho. The, the outrage and outcry would be enormous. These were real people uh, in real time and space that God had commanded to be destroyed. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Maybe a parenthesis is appropriate at this point. God's revelation about the nations in the Old Testament is not uh, flat. Abraham is promised a land that he personally never receives. He is there in that land, but the nations have it. Why do they have it? Because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. God is being patient with the nations. What is happening to them is not unjust. They deserve uh, death. They deserve the judgment. All deserve that. We, we learned this uh, from the garden forward. But God is being patient. He doesn't give Abraham, his friend, his servant, the land that he's promised because the sin of the Amorite isn't yet full. Perhaps the implication is they will repent. Who, who is the prophet to lead them to repentance? Abraham. The very promise that he has um, potentially undermined by uh, his prophetic task if he uh, were to go to them. But that's another story for another day. Man, woman, child, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, because the nations worship other gods, they don't know me, they will pollute you and lead you astray. They must be uh, destroyed. This is... Uh, but we know in the Pentateuch, the seeds are there. That tension is there. In Abraham, all nations will be blessed. Uh, in the Pentateuch, or in, in the former prophets, we have the inclusion of Rahab, one among the alien, foreign uh, nations to be destroyed. In fact, her inclusion, in, in a sense, proves uh, her, she's the exception that proves the rule. But the, there is a, 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 an indication as we see in Christ, that in Rahab, in Ruth, in Tamar, and others, that God will include uh, the nation, the nations. But on the surface of it, the separation between Israel and the nations seems unbridgeable. The nations are used... To show God's glory, by the way. I, I omitted this. Uh, it was uh, hiding in a, a separate uh, little paragraph here. Uh, why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Certainly his sin justified that. But according to the text of Exodus, it is because God intended to glorify himself before Egypt and before Israel that they might know that Yahweh is God. That's the language in um, Exodus uh, uh, 
6, uh, for example, he says, um, I will harden, or it's Exodus 7, 3 and following, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, uh, then I will multiply my miraculous signs, I will lay my hand on Egypt with my mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people of Israel, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And that kind of language repeats again and again in the book of Exodus. God hardening Pharaoh's heart for his glory, for his saving purpose. The history of Israel, the history of Judaism, teaches us that the Jews struggled with this Israel and nation's tension. Um, there, were, there was a universalism that grew up in Judaism, particularly not only because of the Pentateuch and the promise to Abraham that the nations would be blessed, but the prophets, Isaiah, uh, blessing the people through um, Zion, the nation streaming to Zion. The, the, the need for uh, how to account for the nations are to be kept at more than arm's distance. They're meant to be kept at... Uh, uh, on the other side of the country, outside uh, the physical land of Israel. Uh, yet, the prophet is saying they will be included. So a universalism grew up in Judaism, uh, but the dominant strand was still particularism uh, in Israel. And I'm, again, I don't have time uh, to go into this, but the, even our latest canonical books in the Old Testament uh, there is a canonical tension between Ruth and Ezra Nehemiah. Ruth talking about the inclusion of the Moabitess. In fact, Moabitess becomes her last name. Our face is rubbed in the fact that she is a foreigner, but that she is included. Over against Ezra Nehemiah, uh, written in the same period, late in the canonical Old Testament canonical period, that um, the foreign wives are to be put away. The, the tension still exists. It exists down into the New Testament. We see it uh, as the church struggles with Jew and Gentile. Initially, it is the Jews raising the question, how can the Gentiles be included? And ultimately, in the Gentile church, it becomes, how in the world can Jews be in the church? Uh, it, it continued. Paul in Romans 11 had to address that latter question. But we believe in the unity of the revelation of what God is doing in history and in his word. And therefore, we are going to say that the Old Testament lays the foundation for our age of mission, uh, that this tension, Israel, uh, the nations, can be resolved. And to that resolution, I'm going to look uh, to the prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah is a good place to go because of how he looks to the past, he addresses the present, and has one of the most future, forward-looking visions of anyone in the Old Testament. But more importantly, he deals repeatedly with the nations in both ways. He starts out with, in chapter 2 with this fabulous image of the nations will stream up. Water streams down. The metaphor is the nation streaming up against nature to Zion, the exalted mountain uh, of God. The metaphor itself underlining 
the impossibility of this, unimaginability, the nations were going to come. The very image that he uses, they will stream to Zion, which has become the new Sinai, the place out from which the word of God will go. But there are these passages uh, early in Isaiah 13 to 20, chapters 13 to 23, the judgments against the nations. Uh, repeatedly, the Lord talking about shattering his enemies. So, so the, the tension is even there in Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah concludes with what many Old Testament scholars call the greatest Old Testament missionary passage. I bet you didn't know that uh, it was there. You probably avoid the end of Isaiah because here you have this prophecy which shifts gears from um, the gloom and doom of chapter 1 to 39 to the bright light of chapters 40 to 66, the promise of restoration and salvation and uh, Jerusalem becoming uh, a light uh, uh, to the world. But it ends on that odd note um, when all mankind will come and bow before me, says the Lord. Well, that's good missionary stuff. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. But prior to that, in verses 18 to 21, is this great missionary passage. I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and all tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them. I will send, I will send some of those who survive to the nations. There's that missionary uh, passage or within the missionary passage. They will go to the nations, to Tarshish, the Libyans, the Lydians, to Tubal, to, uh, to Greece, to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame and not seen my glory. Again, that proclamation of the great things that God has done. There's going to be a remnant uh, that goes to the nations, and that remnant seems to even be from among the nations that are sent by Yahweh. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. They will bring all your brothers, that is Israel, from all nations to my holy mountain as an offering to the Lord. They're behaving as priests. They're going to bring them on horses and chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonial clean vessels. The, the Gentiles, the nations, are going to behave as, um, as priests of the Lord. And indeed, in verse 21, I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites. So here you have it. Uh, Isaiah framed with great hope for the nations, but in the, in, the, in the heart of the prophecy, many judgments against the nations. Equally troubling is what goes on with Israel, and we'll have to pick up this strand in a moment as well, for when Isaiah is called in chapter 6, what is the message to Isaiah? A great, you would love to have this as your missionary call. What is he to go and do uh, with Israel. What is the content of his message? It is this. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, 
but never understanding. Be ever searing, seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull, close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. God is hardening Israel. People have tried to explain this in hundreds of ways, usually by saying, no, Israel hardened their own hearts. The Septuagint translates it that way. But it, it's clear in the text of the Hebrew Bible that God is hardening the hearts of Israel, lest they turn and be healed. Why is he doing this? For his glory, we know, yes. But how does this serve his glory? So we've got twin things uh, that uh, we're going to look at in the book of Isaiah, and we can do it fairly rapidly, actually. Um, how the nations uh, can be both excluded, included, what's going on there, and then this hardening of Israel, how both serve God's redemptive purpose and can serve as um, bedrock for us in our missionary uh, endeavor. Isaiah is a book in which the king of the universe reveals himself as the Holy One of Israel. That phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is virtually unique to the book of Isaiah. 35 times in, in the Old Testament, 33, 32 of them in Isaiah. It's, why does he call God the Holy One of Israel? From the beginning of his ministry, who does he encounter? the king lifted up high in his throne room. What is the chief attribute that strikes Isaiah? It's the holiness of God. The seraphim are flying around crying, holy, holy, holy uh, is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah reacts by recognizing I'm impure. And that's the right response before a holy God I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm undone. And he experiences in a micro fashion that which all Israel must experience. The, he experiences purification, a wounding and a healing. Purification of Isaiah by touching that burning coal to his lips. Uh, is an image that points to what God must do with his people. He must purify them. And that purification, as he fleshes it out, as the prophet for 40 years of prophesying fleshes it out, involves wounding Israel and then healing Israel. Judgment must come. Israel, one of the uh, introductory um, motifs to picture Israel in the book of Isaiah as is that of an ill and sick body. Israel is infected. Israel is sick. And these repeated cycles of sin, judgment, repentance, deliverance, on one level, show that the basic problem of impurity in Israel, the sinfulness in Israel, is not being solved. It's Tylenol, if you will, being given to a very ill person. Reduces the pain, but doesn't solve the basic problem. Indeed, impurity and, the, and metaphors related to that dominate the book of Isaiah. 
God is rooting out impurity in his people in order that he, the Holy One of Israel, may come and dwell among the people that he has chosen. And that's what drives the book and the prophecy of Isaiah forward, is this purification, uh, first the wounding and then a healing. And the purification process is, if you will, a reversal of the promise to Abraham. Israel must be reduced. The wicked must be taken out and ultimately reduced to a remnant. In fact, in Isaiah's call, he is told that even if a tenth remains in the land, he must st God must still come back and lay waste. The judgment isn't enough. God is narrowing down the focus of his salvation to Israel, his servant, a remnant in Isaiah 40 through 66. And ultimately, that servant is an Israel of one. Stay with me here. It's like God has chosen Israel. He's put his spotlight on the stage full of actors. These people that in the darkness stand out, who give us, uh, who we are able to see precisely because the light shines out of the darkness on them. This is Israel on the stage. But there's a lead actor in there in amongst Israel, and the light, the spot, narrows and ultimately focuses on that lead actor, and he gives his lines. He does his part uh, in the drama. And this is what God is doing in choosing Israel, first of all, is choosing a people out from among all other peoples that he may bring his spotlight to bear on his saving plan. And that he narrows the spotlight to that one true Israelite, Christ, the servant of the Lord, who will bring deliverance, who will bear the iniquities of us all, who will solve not the problem of the exile from the land, but the exile from the garden, who will deal with the impurities in humankind once and for all. That's the picture, by the way, at the end of Isaiah. Christ has done it. Impurity is now outside the city. They stand on the wall of the city and look at it. It is removed. God has done what he promised to do. But he chose Israel, yes, because he loved them. But for his glory, he had a purpose to shine the light on Christ who would come from Israel. Otherwise, Christ would not have been that speaker on a stage with the light on him alone, but rather uh, an actor standing on a busy urban street in broad daylight among the hustling, bustling people reciting his lines, lost in the crowd. Don't, don't push the metaphor too hard here. But, but see that God's purpose in choosing Israel was to bring Christ. And this is why he hardens Israel. No more Tylenol. To turn and be healed delays the coming of Christ. Hezekiah is a picture in the book of Isaiah for this. At the end of his reforms and the life that he lives before God, he comes to a point where God says, you are going to die, Hezekiah. He pleads for more life. What happens in that period? Well, Sennacherib comes, 
and Hezekiah prays, and Israel's delivered, and the salvation is delayed. Manasseh is born, the worst of the Israelite kings. You know, there was one more case. These, these cycles of sin, judgment, repentance, and deliverance foreshadow the coming of Christ. Do not misunderstand me. But they are shadows of the reality that is of salvation that is possible only in Christ. The, the issue of the nations, back to the nations, that Isaiah says they're going to be included. Um, it's that spotlight image again, the spotlight on the stage. They were excluded in God's sovereign purpose that they might ultimately be saved. Putting the light on Israel to point to Christ, God revealing who he is, what he's going to do, doing it, the, the, the pattern of his revelation through all redemptive history. Putting that light on Israel, ultimately on Christ, brings the focus uh, to Christ, the one in whom the nations will ultimately be saved. And it's the irony that the nations must for a time be excluded. That Pharaoh's heart is hardened for God's glory, that he might show himself, that there might be this background that we understand. This is not something new that lately arrived on the scene, but that God's plan of salvation uh, came from the beginning of time to the moment he accomplished it in Christ to the present day as he applies it in the power of his spirit to our lives. The light needed to shine on Israel, and Israel itself needed to be hardened so that the Israel of one would come and live and die. And then Isaiah turns it around. The barren woman, Zion, who is now empty, will have more than she did before, precisely because the nations will come in. Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? Zion, this new and purified people of God. Uh, he is the, 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 fir, the, the true Israelite. He is also the first uh, in, uh, in his church, the firstborn. And the nations now stream to the light of Zion. We have in numerous places in the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 60, perhaps, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you. His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Nations will see your righteousness, all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name. God's people will be a glorious gem in his hand. It is God that makes Zion beautiful, that makes his people beautiful. And it's a people beautiful precisely because the nations have streamed uphill against all hope into the city of God. A city that could come into existence through Christ only because for a time the nations were excluded, Israel was hardened, 
chosen but then hardened to produce that one true Israelite in whom all are saved, may be saved. As I think about implications of this for our missionary task, um, I think this. First of all, there, there's a certain caution uh, to any of us missiologists who would ignore the hard passions, passages about the nations. For it's precisely in seeing the glory of God and what he was doing in excluding and ultimately including the nations that brings him the true honor that's through his name and the encouragement that we can uh, continue in our missionary uh, task. And it brings to mind the fact that God will do it. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He hardened Israel's heart. He excluded the nations. He brought to pass the salvation he chose to bring to pass. He did it. You look in this room among us today. We are the, the nations that have come. But it's not done yet. There are many who still need to hear. God will do it. That's what it shows me. He, he included the nations even after excluding them for his purposes. He did it. He hardened Israel for his purposes that they might uh, experience salvation. That God will do it. And we can be encouraged and draw strength with that. The issue is, will we get on board with his missionary agenda? Will we be included or be left behind in this task. Let me appeal finally to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 and following, a passage that has fired my imagination for 20 years, perhaps more. And it deals with this Gentile Jew tension. Here's verse 3. The mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, is what he's talking about. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This is the mystery that, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The mystery that the Gentile and Jew were one, that the barrier has been broken down in Christ. It's this church that declares the, the, the existence, the very being of this church that declares the wisdom and the glory of God 
to the heavenly principalities and powers. Not only were the Jews of the day surprised that Gentiles were included, but the heavenly principalities and powers were astounded as well, apparently. Through the gospel, Gentiles are joint heirs. What startling news for the people of a religion that had practiced under God's imprimatur exclusion. The heavenly powers learn as well. Jew and Gentile in the same church, mystery, miracle, possible only through Christ. And it's a testimony to his greatness. We need to see the church as part of the gospel. It was God's eternal purpose in verse 11 for this church to include Jew and Gentile. God did not change his mind. He excluded the Gentile for a time that they might be included. He had one plan of salvation. He has accomplished it. He continues to bring it to bear on all nations. The call for us is will we be part of it? Will we draw faith from what he has done through all time and all places for his saving purposes? Uh, let's join together in prayer and then we'll have a time for questions. Father, we would call heaven and earth, principalities and powers, to see that which you have done in our midst, bringing diverse nations to you. But Father, we would call upon you not to rest until you establish your church as a glorious testimony to your grace on this earth. That Father, you would continue to draw the nations. You would draw those who have not heard. You would raise up those to go to those who have not heard. To peoples uh, with no gospel witness and testimony in their midst that you would raise up even from among those in this room. Father, you have done it. We see the first fruits here around us. But Father, forgive us if we rest. May we, as we give you no rest until you do this thing, give us no rest until we see your glory. To your knowledge covers the earth as the waters cover the sea until those from every tribe and every nation are there in the throng before your throne. Forgive us, Father, where we have not been trusting you for you to bring your redemptive purpose to its full conclusion. Work on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, any questions um, you want to address? Yes, ma'am. This is one of the, how shall I say, mysteries of how God works. First of all, going back to Pharaoh's hardening, it's clear. He hardened uh, preeminently for God's glory. Pharaoh was hardened, and, 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 it's, and it fits in an overarching redemptive uh, situation. But Pharaoh's sin, he says, I don't know Yahweh. I'm not going to do anything to, to, to bless Yahweh. I mean, that his sin warranted anything God would do 
to him at that point. Sparing his life was a blessing. Israel, their, their hardness was warranted by their sin. They had followed other gods. It, the, the very nature of the hardening, the blindness, the deafness, reflects the, the blindness and the deafness of the idols they were following. It was a just judgment. Um, do we want to say that in this age of the Spirit that God continues uh, to harden hearts? Um, we know that God makes vessels for his pleasure, both for wrath and for good. Uh, that God is the sovereign Lord over all. Yet, what does the scripture, Old and New Testament, reveal about God? That he is gracious, he is merciful, he is long-suffering. He didn't send Israel out of the land uh, immediately. He waited generation upon generation. That um, insofar as God hardens hearts today, it's just. The, 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 heart, the, the hardness is a just punishment for sin, yet at the same time, uh, we, we need to believe God does this for his glory as well. Uh, understanding that what happens with Pharaoh and Israel may be somewhat different than what happens with individuals today, precisely because the, there's a redemptive historical significance there. But hardening is, is a tough business. Uh, read Romans 11:25 and following. Paul breaks into praise, which actually comes from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 40. No, what, um, but it's chapter 11. He finishes, he breaks into praise because God hardened all men to disobedience so that he may save all men. And then that, he leads to Paul's praise. Not just God's sovereignty, but that in God's saving plan, uh, he is doing this. That's Romans 11, 25 and following. Tough business to read, uh, but it's there. Other questions? Yes. Uh, Hebrews, maybe I'm pulling rank by appealing to the New Testament, said that the, the people who fell in the desert uh, had the same gospel preached to them. There's just a lot of links between that people of God and uh, the people of God to whom the writer of Hebrews is speaking, seeing a unity there. They had the same gospel. The problem was the, the people in um, Israel at that period did not combine the gospel they heard with faith to believe, but they hardened their hearts and feared and turned away. So um, I would say that the task of Israel was to proclaim the great and mighty things God has done. In fact, Hebrews again picks up on that Deuteronomy 4 passage by saying, Jesus was declared to us by miracles and wonders. I think that it's not an accidental parallel uh, to Deuteronomy 4 at that point. But the, the point is that God works with his people. We have the same proclamation. God's people are to be pure in all times and all places. Uh, we are the seed of Abraham. We are the spiritual seed. The New Testament knows no dichotomy. Jew and Gentile are one in the church. And I would interpret uh, the Old Testament through the lens of Christ and the New Testament on this one, ultimately. Set in its own context, you see uh, discipleship going on more in a, f a familial context. Um, you know, the, the parents raising their children. But what was to be, but clear, 
discipling was to pass on to the next generation the great mighty things God had done and the law. And that's no different than what we are to be doing today. Most of the, uh, the Muslim nations were, were, were Christian nations. I am sure Professor Barker is going to answer that in the history of the church uh, lecture this afternoon. Yes, I am sorry, I don't, but go, right. Um, in other words, since they were Christ, Christians, they have abandoned Christianity, shake our, uh, the dust off our feet and leave them. Is that, is that what you're implying? I see in Christ the business of the, uh, in, the, in the redemptive historical period in which we live, the, uh, the, the last days have begun. They're not over yet. But Christ has come. The nations have begun to come. Uh, but there is still a not yet aspect to it as well. And, but one thing that is done, the nations are no longer excluded in the sense that they are beckoned. There is a new Zion. The church, uh, in the words of Hebrews again, we, we haven't come to this mountain of smoke and fire, but we've come to the new mountain of God, Zion, uh, the church of the firstborn, where the testimony of, of those uh, who look to God as their savior. And insofar as in the new Zion, this, this barrier is broken down, the exclusion of Jew and Gentile is now gone. That, that, that's done, that's a done business. It had a purpose in his redemptive uh, program, uh, but the exclusion of the nations is done. Now, the exclusion of the nations also, the judgment on them pointed ahead, points ahead to the final judgment. There's no doubt there. There's eschatological fulfillment there yet ahead of us. A, as Klein tells us, an intrusion of the final judgment in the judgment of, of, of those. But I, I would not uh, ever abandon any people. I, I, I just see the... the, the the, the zeal, even in that context of the Old Testament where the exclusion was very much in the forefront, the inclusion is mentioned. Don't forget, it is coming. The nations will come and we should uh, continue. But your point is well taken and I trust Professor Barker to come back to this.